0: Welcome to Sport Media and Tech. I'm Keel Blake. On this episode, Dr. Jeff Porter, Mark Hotchkin, and I spend time with Key Lee, CMO of Kissway. We talk about why the industry is moving towards digital streaming, personalized experiences, and how Kissway powers some of
1: the world's largest interactive pay per view events. I actually have a pharmacy degree, but I never practiced. And so, uh, you know, I never never was licensed. And I think by me not practicing ph- uh, pharmacy, I probably saved a lot of lives. <laughs> so, um, and then now, you know, fast forward after a few startups, a couple that were sold. And I spent a decade at Google, which was an incredible 10 years of my life. Uh, now I'm in the... Sexy world of concerts and sports. And it's really cool because at Kidsway, I'm the chief marketing officer there, and you know, I, I, you know, I started at Kisway when we had like zero revenue, zero customers, and fast forward, and you know, we're proud to say that we have incredible clients, world class clients like ESPN and NBA and PGA Tour and. And we worked with the largest band in the world today, which is BTS, and Queen, which is historically <laughs> huge, with Adam Lambert, and we just did Josh Groban, and so we went from literally zero to 100 miles per hour—not zero to 60, zero to 100 miles per hour—and it's been an exciting journey. It's it's been a crazy journey, um, uh, but you know, also just from a career perspective, you know, I think. You know, people are always like, how do you go from having a pharmacy degree to, you know, to what you do today and dipping into Google and all this other stuff? And uh, you know, that's had a lot of learnings, but it's also a lot of personal risk taking. And uh, but I will say it's it's been an incredible journey and you just have to enjoy the journey through the ebbs and flows and the troughs and the peaks and the valleys.
2: Hicky, I, I love it because uh, and I love your background. My wife graduated with a pharmacy degree. And so awesome. knowing that, knowing your background, it'd be interesting <laughs> to have a conversation with her tonight that hey, guess what? You could be uh, working for Google or, or yes. a tech company. With true your pharmacy G- degree. <laughs> true, true. Um, so let's let's dive in a little bit for the viewers and people that are listening. Let's talk about KissWe and what mm-hmm. the platform does, what the company is known for, and what you guys are trying to do, especially in this new market.
1: Yeah. I- we are a technology company. Uh, we are hardcore technologists. Uh, I think we have at least twelve patents. Um, you know, it's really a lot of smart folks. We just know how to build stuff. And I think at the get-go, when we when this company was started, I wasn't here from the beginning. I came in, uh, in mid mid cycle. Um, a lot of stuff was built, but the use cases were not there. And I think uh, part of the issue was that um, we were kind of ahead of our time. And then finally, uh, we were able to figure out really great use cases. And, and I think uh, the world caught up to what we were doing. And it's simply, we are in the business of live streaming. And we happen to be in two specific verticals or industries, which are in sports and in concerts. But our technology is deployed in two different ways because of the two different verticals. So in sports, it's uh, really behind-the-scenes technology, uh, cloud production. Our big focus right now is alternate broadcast, and I think we'll talk about it a little bit. But there's this huge movement towards alternate broadcast. Uh, became famous this year because of Manningcast on ESPN too, right? But we had actually been doing it before Manningcast made it famous. And uh, so we actually power a lot of that through the cloud. And you're going to see a big movement in sports and in other industries where broadcast is going to be put into the cloud. And they're because of economic challenges and reasons, but also viewership challenges. And on the concert side, we do everything from end to end, where we have our our own ticketing platform that we built out that has all the tax implications. And we do everything from end to end where a person buys a ticket to the actual uh, website user experience that we built out that's white labeled onto artists' platform. So when we did Queen, it's actually on Queen's website. When we did Josh Groban, it's actually on Josh Groban's website. Um, but we do everything end to end on that one. And that's much more consumer-facing stuff. So on the sports side, it's more, I call it the plumbing. (laughs) It's like a lot of plumbing. And on the music side, it is both the plumbing and the sink and everything around it.
3: Uh, That's great. And uh, talking about being a a pharmacy major, um, I'm actually a history major. So it'll kind of lead me into this question. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, think about, I, I think it's helpful to understand where the landscape was and kind of where it is today and then into what you believe it'll be in the future. But um, definitely would be interested in your thoughts of, of talking a little bit about what uh, this, uh, this landscape looked like, you know, 10 years ago and, and how you see it moving forward and how you all fit in.
1: So, uh, you know, when you really think about, you know, what has traditionally, traditionally, uh, what things have looked like, right? I use Monday Night Football as the best example It's always been three men in a booth since the beginning of time. And it really hasn't changed except for swapping out the people. And it's always been an English-only, one-to-many concept. But today, the challenge, um, maybe not so much for the NFL, but for the other sports, is that there is eroding viewership. Um, And it's simply because there's board cutters, Um, you're starting to see it with uh, not just in general cable and multi-video networks. Uh, I think in the last two years, the cord cutters have eroded viewership by 10%, but even in sports, uh, there's been a decrease of 2 to 4% in the last uh, couple of years. But the challenge is sports rights are very expensive, right? Um, And uh, I think annually, it's like $15.5 billion to $16 billion in sports rights are bought by networks. A third of that is actually the NFL. So the NFL is obviously the premium product out there. But then you also have port cutters up against it. So you have less viewership. What that ultimately means is simple math. Uh, You have a profit squeeze. You have contraction in profits. And that puts a lot of pressure on, on the networks. And the traditional model, traditional sports broadcasting model of English only one to many is actually evolving. And you're starting to see a lot of those examples, like everywhere. I mean, last year, I love seeing, I actually tuned into the Nickelodeon playoff game of the NFL. And what I thought was really cool from that was Kurt Warner NFL hall of fame quarterback said that that was the first time he actually watched an NFL game with his son. Right. Um, you're starting to see uh, Amazon Prime video. Who have, They have the rights to Thursday Night Football. They just announced last week that Dude Perfect, a bunch of YouTube guys who do a bunch of sports tricks, are going to have their own alternate broadcasts on Thursday Night Football. Um, and I'm not sure if you know this, but in previous years, Amazon Prime has also experimented with Thursday Night Football with an all-female broadcast. We've done that. We do that today with, with the NBA. Um, we work with uh, the international side of things, and and the great discovery, which makes a lot of sense, is that um, when they started shifting uh, the um, color commentators to actual natives, right, not just interpreters, but native speakers and who actually know the game, there was a shift in viewership towards those specific games they chose to feature in that native language. And we have some really great examples uh, with the NBA. Um, so, and then uh, we've experimented with uh, uh, influencers. You know, I, um, there was a, a sneakerhead. head, there was like a, some, I think it was like some YouTube guys who were sneakerheads. They're in mid twenties who just know everything about sneakers. And they, did, they actually broadcast, uh, we did an experiment with them to broadcast uh, a, a game talking about sneakers and uh, the league loved it. Um, and we did it with the PGA Tour when they finally came back to their first tournament. Uh, during COVID. uh, We did nine simultaneous broadcasts uh, on Twitter. And it was everybody from some NFL players to some artists to golf instructors and great numbers and great reception. People love listening to other voices. So, And I wrote about this actually in Sports Business Journal before Manicast happened. I said, the next evolution of sports broadcasts will be listening to voices that people want to hear, listen to different types of voices, different types of perspectives. And we're starting to see that pretty quickly now. It's accelerating, like I said, from Dude Perfect, ManningCast, I think we're going to see a lot more of that in sports.
0: You mentioned all of these different voices. How do you see personalization impacting the total addressable market going forward and actually tackling eroding viewership?
1: Yeah, so to really simplify, and as I said earlier, the traditional format was English only one to many, and here's what is the broadcast. You either accept it or or you don't. Um, With the evolution towards alternate broadcasts, alternate voices, and also by having more competition in bidding for these rights, it also brings in more creativity. Right, as opposed to just relying on the traditional networks. And with that creativity, if you're able to super serve different demographics, different audiences, in theory, and I, I, I not just theory, I do believe this, that the sum of all parts will equal a greater sum than just the traditional uh, format. So I think by super serving audiences, you're gonna have a much larger, larger audience uh, in the final tally. Uh, And the the other challenge for the major sports, uh, I mean, they're aging, you know, I'm not sure if people know this, but the average age of a major league baseball fan is 57 years old. Um, The average age of an NFL fan is 50, NHL is 49, I think NBA is 42, Um, F1 and MLS is under 40. Uh, But all the leagues have one major, have two challenges, one, Eroding viewership overall, and two, tapping in, trying to tap into the younger demographic, because I just shared with you the average age of like a major league baseball fan, which is fifty-seven, and they're all struggling to reach that younger demographic because the reality there's too many other choices. Esports is a monster, you know. There's eyeballs going that that way. So there's a lot more options, a lot more choices for viewers, especially younger viewers. And you got social media taking away attention. So the challenge for sports is how do you grab their attention? And it can't be, and you know, I'm going to be very honest, it can't be some old guy talking about you know sports from 40 years ago. You know, there's a If I could say this, I saw this on Twitter. There's this great comedian who does a lot of voices, and he did a comparison of NBA broadcasters versus major league <laughs> baseball broadcasters.
0: The wall brings it across half court with the left hand dribble. Hands off at the hip to Davis. Davis uses the right hand, crossover to his left with the defender falling down, goes to the free throw line, backs it in, elbow, dumps it to the right corner, and it's Johnson for three. So you're telling me that you spread the jelly before the peanut butter. Folks, somebody may have to call the authorities, and it's not because there's someone on the field. It's because my partner is certifiably insane. That one's uh, just a bit inside there for ball three. Council, you don't even
1: scrape off the knife? Well, so you put the peanut butter first on versus the jelly? People want to hear voices that are similar to them, people that look like them, you know, like... People want to hear different perspectives. Some might want something more academic about the sport, you know, or something more fun. So I think when you really start super serving audiences, you're going to grab their attention. Not only do you increase viewership, I believe, but you're going to increase watch time, which is very important for advertising. And in the end, the sum of it all will, I believe, increase viewership.
2: Hey, Keith, I will not let that point go. And the reason being about super serving the audience is during the Olympic Games a year ago, Leslie Jones was on her Instagram and she was commentating the Olympics. And so one of the events that uh, I competed in was 110-meter hurdles. And Mm -hmm. what she said about the hurdles was they were running over kitchen counters, which I thought, as a hurdler, I thought was hysterical, but I never put two and two together. And so I, I think when you, to your point, are you guys finding that some of the younger voices, some of the more intricate voices are coming from social media influencers? Are they coming from obviously the entertainment sector? Like who are those voices coming from that sports can actually use to galvanize and and, and capture the, the younger audience?
1: Honestly, I think it can be from anywhere, right? So I just gave you the example of Dude Perfect, which is a bunch of YouTube guys doing sports tricks. And they're now on Thursday Night Football. But then related to your Olympic comment, I remember Kevin Hart and Snoop Dogg doing a segment on Equestrian. I thought that was hilarious. Yes, it was hysterical. And then I remember years ago, Snoop Dogg did a little NHL for the LA Kings. Yes, he did. I love that. Like, I freaking love that stuff, right? Because I'm like, I want to hear what Snoop Dogg has to say. I want to hear what Kevin Hart has to say about equestrian because I know it's going to be hilarious. And by the way, I'm going to watch it. Like that's the point of, of, of these screens. Like the goal is to get people to watch it. And how do you do it? Honestly, it's different voices and different faces will really increase engagement. I honestly believe that. And I see it. I see it with myself anecdotally. And I also see it in the data and I can't really share that data with, with our partners, but we see it. That's a great point. I'd like to dive
3: into that a little bit even more, especially how how your company um, helps bring the the, yeah. the the solution to your fans and make them a real part of it. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, about that.
1: and that that's that's when we get into the the sauce uh, and the cooking. So the so to give you a little backdrop of you know of of costs, the reality is there's only so much studio space, right? You know, if you want to add in more alternate broadcasts then you would have to build out more studio space, which is more expensive. Then you've got travel, then you got paid talent. That adds up pretty quickly. And knowing that sports rights are increasing faster than inflation over decades, and then you've got less viewers that really puts a strain on profits. So we actually are, we are a technology solution to help scale alternate broadcasts. So how we do that is we do everything in the cloud. And by doing that, Um, We could take live broadcasts with the natural audio from the stadium. Uh, We could strip out uh, the main broadcaster because we work directly with like the NBA and and broadcasters and the color commentator, whether they're an influencer or talking in a different language or whoever it is, they do it from home. You saw that with Manicast. Now they had much better cameras (laughs) and and audio, but we could do everything through a laptop actually. Um, So there are actual NBA games that are being broadcast from someone's laptop in Rio de Janeiro, honestly. And the point is this, you reduce travel costs, re- reduce a lot of costs. You don't have to build up more studios. And think of it, there's a lot of languages. You could scale that up for a lot of different sports. Uh, if you want to tr- test out different influencers, if you want to do Kevin Hart while he's at home watching it, it. There's a lot of different things when you put everything into the cloud because it dramatically reduces costs. It encourages more experimentation and to really get insights and feedback on what's working and, and what's not. And so I think that's where technology really advances uh, all these different types of, of broadcasts and also producing different types of show shows when you, when you put everything into the cloud. And then the, the other thing uh, that we're hearing in the marketplace is there's actually a, a, a labor shortage, right? So In this new world that we live in, where we all work from home, you know, I I don't, I live thousands of miles from our headquarters, but I live in Las Vegas now. Um, It applies to broadcasters, like they don't wanna travel. And if they can do it from their home, that's great. So that increases the opportunities, or I should say, increases the talent pool to do things. And not just the broadcasters, but folks who are actually in production, right? You don't have to shove everybody into a, a production truck now, On site, I know for a fact that networks are now figuring out how to do everything more remotely. So you don't need to put everybody into a truck. And by the way, when they're coming out of COVID, there are a lot of folks who are still fearful of being put into a truck in tight quarters, right? And so what this does is by putting everything into the cloud, being able to create shows in the cloud, you're addressing a lot of things, everything from safety to costs to scaling, so many things you can do just by putting things into cloud. And, we, and that's what our technology does. I said we're plumbing, but it's really good plumbing.
2: <laughs> hey, Keith, one of the things I wanted you to, to harp on is uh, uh, KISSWE did a, a partnership and collaboration and work with HBCUs. Yes.
1: Talk to us about what that was and then why it was important for We to do that. So one of our founders is very well connected to the HBCUs. And the reality is like every college and HBCUs specifically had a lot of great content, but it just wasn't being broadcast. So this was in our early days where we were actually doing app development around live streaming. So we developed a very specific app for HBCUs so they could provide live content or VOD content, but predominantly live content so that people could see what was available. So we created essentially an app platform for live broadcasts. So, so again, I, 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 what I won't let you off the hook <laughs> is
2: you guys had a founder that was connected to the HBCU. What was the, the reasoning? Like what, what, was his, what was his or her why?
1: Oh, so he, one, uh, his name is Jimmy Lin. Um, he's a professor over at Georgetown University. And uh, if you know anything about Jimmy Lynn, <laughs> uh, it, he is one of the greatest mentors of young kids or just young people. Um, it, it's ama- I think he's mentored hundreds and hundreds of kids. And even though he's a professor at Georgetown, he has mentored kids beyond Georgetown. And he just had a very special connection um, to the HBCUs. And he really is a man of like, just promoting diversity. And he just felt like this is something that we need to really, you know, grapple our hands around and and really drive and lead in bringing, you know, diverse content, live content to the forefront. So it was really driven by one of our co-founders, Jimmy Lin.
0: For emerging sports that are building viewership, you know, what is the data that KissWe can help collect around fan demographics, engagement, that can really help them develop uh, their community over
1: time. Yeah, so data is the new oil, right? Data is the new oil, but it has to go, be refined to create insights. Uh, so, and, and I think that's what um, has to be really emphasized, that it doesn't matter how much data you have, uh, you need data scientists and analytics to really understand like, what's this all, all mean? So data is very important. Um, I think there is a big challenge uh, for every entity um, when it comes to data, uh, and I'm not talking about privacy stuff. It's just really understanding who your u- users are. Let me let me kind of rewind. Let me give you a really good example because I actually know Dana White, you know, who's the 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 face and the head of uh, of UFC, and I met him a decade ago, and. Um, He gave me, I'm sure it's fine, me sharing the story. It was the first time I was actually in his office at the UFC headquarters. And he was just really curious about digital because I was at Google at the time and he just wanted to pick my brain. Uh, But I got a lot more out of the conversation (laughs) than I gave him. And I thought this was really cool. And he reminded me that when UFC started, no network wanted to touch it. You know, it's this violent sport, whatever, you know, what people thought of it. And he said they grew because of digital. It wasn't cause um, a network picked up on them, but it was because of Facebook and YouTube. And they put the content out there. And they found this audience that loved MMA. And it was MMA that was regulated because regulation was really critical to really making this very legitimate. And they they created this incredible uh, popular sport and, and so Dana always reminds me, like, it was because of digital that the sport grew. And then the networks finally started paying big dollars. They did a big deal with Fox. And now it's on ESPN on a weekend, every weekend you know, basis. Uh, so, but they were able to find their audience and find data on their audience through these different platforms. So even though you may not own the app or whatever that platform is, you can get a lot of great insights. You know, I, you know, having worked at Google and and they own YouTube, there's so much stuff in the dashboard to understand demographics and regions of of where, uh, of your audience. Um, So I I would say, I would suggest whether it's social, whether it's other platforms, use all of it to get as much data. Some of it might be just proxy data. Some of them might be primary data, uh, but you do your best to just assemble and then try to analyze uh, who your audience is and where they're from and how you better serve them.
3: Curious what your thoughts are on, on the technologies that will tie into what you do and how, how fans consume sports in the future. Um, you know, we've talked to a lot of people on this on the show about AR and VR. Um, curious if that plays into your uh, view of, of the future.
1: So I'm not an expert in AR VR, nor am I an expert in Web3 or <laughs> NFTs, but um I do believe there all of them will be deployed in some fashion, right? And I can only use anecdotal evidence. Um, the one example I'll give is in the music space. I was shocked when I think it was marshmallow, yeah, it was marshmallow, when he did a Fortnite concert and In that Fortnite concert, it was 10 and a half million people concurrent watching a concert in the virtual world of Fortnite. I thought that was incredible. But what it said or what it indicated is that there is a massive audience on different platforms and it's about meeting your audiences on different platforms. I'm not sure if one platform will rule all for whatever reason, but I think you just have to try and experiment and see. So... Will there be a place for virtual? Yeah, I think there will be. Will there be a place for AR? Oh yeah, you know, I'm not one, you know, having grown up in technology, (laughs) having done startups for the last 20 plus years, I'm not gonna dismiss any technology. You know, I know that the NFT space and Web3 are going through some rough patches right now, but uh, I'm not gonna discount any of that because there are a lot smarter people uh, than me working on these things. And I have high confidence that ultimately people figure these things out, whether it's VR, AR, it's just a matter of what's the adoption. And I don't know what those answers are there. There may be a place for all of it, just that the adoption might not be as big or small. Yeah. Key, okay, You mentioned
2: just now, right, that you've mm-hmm. had 20 plus years of experience in startups, Google. <laughs> All the all, all your your wide range of experiences. So looking ahead, and some of the people that are listening to this are interested in getting involved and in getting into the space. So what skill sets are you looking for or to help um, grow your business, help the company? Like what skill sets are, are people looking you you would recommend students and folks getting into this industry have? Or is it just a wide range of skill sets? And if it's a wide range, what types of ranges are we looking for?
1: Wow, that's a t- that's a super tough question. Um, Obviously, you know different roles require different um, hard skill sets. Um, You know, I just actually did a this past weekend. uh, I was at a college-related conference, and I was asked more broad, a more broader uh, question. And I and I look at my career. I think the number one uh, key factor in my success in my career journey. Uh, Is actually been networking. Um, You know, uh, and what I fear because we live behind screens, mobile phones, TV screens, and this world of remote working, uh, I fear that it's going to make us live in our caves longer, you know, which are our homes. And the challenge I gave to the college kids at this conference was quantify how much time you spend at your home versus how much you spend outside of your home. And even if outside, it doesn't mean outside of your home, you're constantly networking. So I'm a golfer uh, and I can only share like stories I have. I can honestly say half of my big business deals, and I've done some huge deals, came from playing golf with people. And golf is to me is amazing because it's basically four and a half, five hours walking in a park. (laughs) And you're kind of forced to talk to people. And half my deals, I really believe this, were because I spent time with people. And so the emphasis here is networking is not necessarily about going to some networking event. That's not it. It's all organic. It's all natural. It's going to dinners. It's just hanging out with people, playing pickup games, whatever it is. That's all organic networking and getting to know, know people. So I think, and I see this in my own career a lot of my jobs were all because of, of people I met. Like my job at Google was because of someone. My job here at Kisway is because of someone I met in my past. So, you know, and I believe majority of jobs, and I think, I forget what it was, like 60%, come through networks. It's not job boards. That's actually a, a, a smaller percentage. It's really through your network. So I think number one, I would say for career development, networking, also, mentoring, finding mentors. Um, I've had some incredible mentors. I'll never be as successful as them, but I learn a ton from them and I apply a lot of those skills. So, but it all comes down to just being in relationships and meeting people and uh, getting to know them.
2: Well, Key, uh, I'll turn it back over to Key, but rest assured, I'm working on that golf game. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming, but I, I will tell you, I, short game is doing pretty well. That slice on that driver is killing me right
1: now. Well, if you're ever in Vegas, give me a ring. I will take you out. I promise you that. I, I will hold you to that. Yeah. yeah. Come on, Jeff.
0: We're all working on our golf game. If we're, not, if we're not saying we're working on it. I don't know. I don't know. We're all working on it. but. Uh, Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, learning from you. We have a tradition that we end uh, you know, with asking for advice, life advice for, for our students. And you talked about being on a journey. So what life advice would you have to share with our students? And we'll end from there. Yeah, life
1: is a journey. And it's not about one big goal at the end. Um, And I think the most important thing is, and it's, it's an old reference, but you have to chop wood every day. Consistency is literally the most important thing in real productivity. It's not, you know, people get so goal oriented, but people don't realize all the different steps to get to the goal. And because they don't do that, they never actually really achieve goals. So you really have to focus on what i call winning a day and I, i've this this thing that I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback on this i would say win the day and look at it from a numerical perspective you know the business week is only five days of the week and you have two days on the weekend a week is seven days so whether whether you look at it from a five-day work week or a seven-day week you're going to either win the week or you're going to lose the week It's either you win over 50% of you don't. And so I would say focus on the day, win the day, and hopefully by the end of the week, you've had more days won than, than days lost. And But it all, it's all because you're consistently focusing on the day. And over the course of time, it's that journey. And you hope that you're winning week every day or most days or most weeks. And in the end, you're going to be a winner. And that's that's how I look at it. Just focus on the day, be consistent, because that's what leads to success. It's not goal setting. It's about what you do every, every single day, practice, chopping wood, whatever it is. That's, that's my best advice.
0: Join us next episode where we talk about pickleball, the fastest growing sport in America with Commissioner Connor Pardo and President Bryce Morgan of the Professional Pickleball Association, the PPA.